permanent birth control has historically conjured up immediate imagery of invasive procedures in the OR, such as hysterectomies and tubal ligations. But in the past several years, endometrial ablation has proven to be a suitable alternative for permanent birth control and minimization of heavy menstrual bleeding. Not long after, this procedure has since been brought into the outpatient setting, and that will become the focus of our discussion today. You're listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Joining me at Omnia Education's Women's Health Annual Visit in New York is Dr. Monte Suaro. He's a partner at New Horizons Women's Care from Arizona, OBGYN affiliates, and clinical assistant professor at Midwestern University in Phoenix, Arizona, where it's much, much warmer than here. Dr. Suaro, welcome to the program today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So why don't we start uh, with an overview of the patient population. Um, who's coming into your office for outpatient endometrial ablation procedures and why? Anyone that is a candidate for it that has uh, a form of permanent birth control um, and for heavy and or painful cycles. Now, the applications for the procedure do extend to treatment for endometriosis um, and, believe it or not, for PMS. I do want to clarify one piece in the introduction. Um, Endometrial ablation is not a technique for permanent birth control. Endometrial ablation, your chances of pregnancy after an ablation are actually very small but we require a form of permanent birth control in order to have an endometrial ablation, whether it's uh, tubal ligation, vasectomy is satisfactory in most situations, or the most common procedure now is hysteroscopic tubal sterilization. Um, And there's only one technique out there called the Assure procedure. Interesting. So take us back then um, about that misconception, because certainly I fell into that category. Um, Where does that misconception arise, and where does endometrial ablation come into play then for people who are, they're coming into uh, your office mainly for the symptoms beyond birth control itself, correct? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So let's, let's go with a patient example. A uh, 38-year-old comes in, she's had her two children, and she does not have a form of permanent birth control, but she's passing clots, uh, staining her clothes, wearing double protection. These are all very common things that are out there that are completely not normal. And she desires to proceed with endometrial ablation. She's done taking birth control pills. Uh, she is not interested in an IUD. A Mirena could actually help as well and desires to proceed with ablation. The offer for her would be, and she would have an ultrasound, she would need to have a hysteroscopy and endometrial biopsy. We need to look inside of her uterus to confirm that there's no pathology that's contributing to the heavy bleeding. We need to uh, also make sure that pathologically there isn't anything contributing to the heavy cycles. And at the same time, she would probably choose to have the hysteroscopic tubal sterilization. Now, after that, she would need to wait three months and do the confirmation test for the sterilization. Basically, shoot some dye in her uterus, do some x-rays, make sure that the inserts are in proper position. Then she can come in for a second procedure and have the endometrial ablation. And tell our audience, why is that the case? Why follow that particular paradigm? After an endometrial ablation, um, it can be prohibitively difficult slash impossible to get inside of the uterus. Um, Consequently, we have an inability to uh, get dyed to where we need to, where the inserts are to be able to properly evaluate the uterus. So we have to proceed with these techniques in in, in terms of uh, the entire paradigm that's necessary in order to have the safety for the patient. Sometimes we'll have people whose partner had a vasectomy. I'll give you a story. A lady moves uh, from Dallas to come and see me, and uh, her partner had a vasectomy. She had an endometrial ablation, and she's not having cycles whatsoever, which is perfect. Uh, It happens about 50% of the time. So she got remarried. 
her new partner has not had a vasectomy and she's not having periods. She's in her early 40s. So consequently, she needs a form of permanent birth control. And she asked me about doing the hysteroscopic tubular sterilization. My answer is no. The reason is we often can't even see the tubes when we go inside because of the scarring that's created from the ablation technique itself. Um, so her alternative was the traditional laparoscopic tubal sterilization, which is a very good procedure. Um, it's just safer, I think, to proceed with a hysteroscopic tubal sterilization if you can. And how often, um, moving in on endometrial ablation, it's come into the off, uh, in, in patient, um, off patient setting, I, we should say the in-office setting. Yes. Um, how often is that starting to be utilized now? Have you seen an explosion in its usage, or is it, um, is it starting to trickle? So if we go back to the history a little bit of endometrial ablation, endometrial ablation is an old procedure. It's been around for 20, 25 years. The techniques long ago were rollerball or cutting away the inside of the uterus, and they had to be done with um, fluid management that was potentially could lead to hyponatremia. Um, things like glycine or sorbitol, so you could see enough to be able to do this. Um, also, when you burned away and were um, uh, irrigating with that fluid, the fluid absorbs tremendously. Or if you cut away that lining, the fluid absorbs tremendously too. So these procedures were somewhat dangerous and were consequently, they didn't take on favor very well. In 1997, the first global endometrial ablation technique came out, and subsequently in 2001, the most popular present global endometrial ablation technique came out as well, and they were complete game changers. Um, through the course of the 2000s, these procedures became incredibly popular. Actually, the most popular technique that's out there is called Novasure. Um, it is about 70% of market share, and now um, it's over 2 million procedures that have been done all over the world. Well, in the mid-2000s, many of these techniques um, were moving into the office. And in-office is fabulous. Patients love it. Um, their co-pays are generally just specialty visits. Um, they're in and out much quicker than they are in the hospital. Um, it's a, a fantastic process. And, you know, I think that our responsibility was to have ladies understand that what they're going through is not normal that the treatments are very, very straightforward, and it's not like your mom having the same problem where her ultimate choice was to have a hysterectomy. Um, these procedures are easy and very safe, um, and that's the other process that uh, brought things into the office. Right, um, so it was that proven track record of being easy, uh, relatively safe, you know, and, and seemingly a fast recovery time, is that right? The recovery time is incredible. With a global in-office endometrial ablation or in the hospital, um, I usually tell people you're going to take the day off of the procedure as you recover from the sedation. Um, no driving, no decisions till the next morning. And I usually tell them to take the next day off. Um, we have, a, I'd say, about a third of people that are cramping, some, some people somewhat substantially. And it's, it, we have a complete inability to predict who's going to cramp more than others. So It's not related in any way to uh, history of cramping in terms of severity? Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I tried to look at that. People that might have had babies without epidurals, people that um, had a self-perception that they were tough, people with dysmenorrhea beforehand, no correlation whatsoever. And I, we had people that you know, would have a C-section and take minimal pain meds and were extremely uncomfortable afterwards. And then I had people that had issues with pelvic pain anyway, have an ablation, and, and they're fine. It, it was a, it, I mean, we are still at a complete loss for it. So consequently, we're careful with everyone. Um, they take the day off the next day. I've had nobody by post-operative day number two that was encumbered to the point where they couldn't go to work or pursue their usual activities. Their only other restrictions are nothing vaginally for two weeks. 
Now, with some of the techniques, you will have some uh, bloody discharge, pass a little bit of tissue. Um, that can last for a month, even six weeks. But that's the process of the, the actual uh, burn ultimately turning into a scar inside of the uterus. So it's more as scarring, not as much uh, endometrial tissue uh, um, sloughing uh, at the, at the yeah. wake of this procedure? Well, in the beginning, specifically with the Nobisher technique, um, they will pass small pieces of tissue. And then the discharge starts to become kind of bloody and watery. The best example I give people, I literally hold out my hand, and I'm like, look, you're going to have a burn inside your uterus that's about the size of the palm of my hand. Um, if, if you did that on your arm, uh, that, that eschar would slough off over the first several days, and then you would seep clear fluid as well as blood there as your body continued to heal and create scar there. The same thing happens on the inside of the uterus, but the uterus does not have pain receptors for uh, the burn. Uh, you know, the, the uterus is extremely sensitive to dilation, but amazingly not to, to the burn. So that's the advantage we have with all of these techniques, uh, whether it's hysteroscopic tubal sterilization, but especially with ablation. Huh. So. Now, you mentioned Novasure in particular. How uh, does that compare to other procedures such as the Escher procedure? Um, who do you recommend one or the other for? So Escher is different. Escher is the form of hysteroscopic tubal sterilization, and presently it's the only technique for hysteroscopic tubal sterilization available. Um, Novasure is one of the techniques available for global endometrial ablation. Your other choices are hot water in a balloon, which is thermochoice. Um, uh, free-floating, circulating hot water, hydrothermal ablation, and then freezing cryoablation. Um, but even with all those techniques that are out there, Novasure occupies 70% of the market share. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. I'm joined by Dr. Monte Swaru from New Horizons Women's Care in Arizona. So, Dr. Swaru, you mentioned some of the risks. Take us through any more risks of endometrial ablation procedures, and what comes to mind in particular, it's the rare scenario for me of a like a breakthrough pregnancy after endometrial ablation. Where does that risk come into play? Is it very, very rare? Um, and how does that even happen on the physiological level? People can, first of all, if you have an endometrial ablation, only 50% of people statistically will have zero periods. If you do, it's just a bonus to you. Yeah, that's the ultimate goal. Well, if you still are cycling, you could have glands inside of your uterus that are still present or even microscopic glands. Now, if a pregnancy implants into that small island of glands that are actually there, um, we have a very big problem. And the reason is the uterus is designed to grow as the pregnancy grows, as well as the inside of the uterus, the endometrial glands. There aren't enough endometrial glands present on that small island to grow, and now you run the risk of placenta accreta, increta, or percreta. Percreta being the pregnancy grows not just into the musculature of the uterus, but through the musculature of the uterus. These are extremely serious problems. Um, we had a patient, and I, we didn't do her ablation. She came in pregnant. She was fooling around with her neighbor, but that's okay. <laughs> um, but she, we'll just keep she, that off the record. Yeah, she legitimately came in pregnant, and we were terrified. Fortunately, she ended up having a miscarriage, but the discussion process is extremely serious. Um, operating on them is difficult. Like, for example, I do not do a DNC on anyone who has had an uh, endometrial ablation and is pregnant. You could run into bleeding to the point of death. Um, I mean, these are this is a very, very vascular structure, and the invasion that can happen into that muscle is it's something to be terribly respected. Um, our treatment options are hysterectomy um, or methotrexate. 
So, and with methotrexate, there's not a lot of data on its efficacy in these kind of situations. But you know, from an expert opinion standpoint, it's a lot better than surgery. Mm. So. Well, in your experience, do most of these breakthrough pregnancies, in spite of endometrial ablation, end in miscarriage? Because it seems on the physiological level, like it would be very, very difficult to take root in tissue that's been severely scarred. That's correct. I mean, as there is not enough endometrial glands to provide nutrients to the growing pregnancy, you, you kind of hope that it ends in miscarriage. Yeah. Um, so it's a very big deal. Well, let me turn over to um, limitations. What would you say are some of the limitations of endometrial ablation as an option? It's a good question. Um, one of the biggest things that I encounter are uh, intrauterine pathology, um, specifically fibroid tumors of the inside lining of the uterus. Now, if you do have tumors inside the uterus, some of the techniques are still very amenable to it. But again, as as I give some expert opinion on this, submucosal fibroids, the specific kind that are inside of the cave that is the uterus, they are a problem. And I believe also that once you have one submucosal fibroid, even if I cut it out and do an ablation on you, your success chances for um, amenorrhea or even satisfaction are considerably less than the average population that's out there. Um, these are people that I give the opportunity to uh, really seriously consider having a hysterectomy. Um, and of course, we do hysterectomies now robotically almost all the time, so that's an outpatient procedure, very safe, and you're pretty easy to recover from. But it, it, it is riskier, of course, than having an endometrial ablation. We know, of course, endometrial ablation has moved into the office setting, but are there still issues in access or barriers for patients as far as being able to access this type of procedure? It's a very interesting question. Remember I mentioned the patient's mom earlier? You did. Yeah, the patient's mom should be greatly respected at all times um, because she is still her primary source for um, women's health education. Now, hopefully a lot of the educational opportunities that are coming along with things like ReachMD are going to help people become better educated, but um, you, you have to bridge and respect her, her mom, older sisters, etc., and her friends. We come back to the same thing. 20 years ago, you know, this lady's mom is likely postmenopausal. And 20 years ago, her alternatives were a hysterectomy. And it might have been a vaginal hysterectomy. It might have been an abdominal hysterectomy. These are big procedures with a serious recovery time. What we need to do as healthcare providers is to ask the question, do you have heavy cycles? Painful. How are they affecting your life? The clots, the double protection, the staining your clothes, the missing work or your day-to-day -day activities. These are things that are unacceptable in today's society. These procedures that we're talking about are not even close to new. Um, they, they are extremely well-established procedures. Insurers are, are excited about them because they're considerably less expensive than hysterectomies, especially when we start talking about doing things in an office. All we can do is ask the proper questions and increase awareness. Yeah, I ask at every annual exam. So, And even if people are answering positive to some of the questions, and don't want to do anything about it, I give them some information, I have them watch a video that I have me on TV talking about this stuff, just to let them know that it's out there. Because we need to educate so that when they have their next cycle, or two or three, before they come back, they have to understand that these treatments are out there, and they have to come back to us and decide how much they're struggling or not, and whether it's worthwhile to do something about it. The universal answer I get after endometrial ablations 
see people a few months later is I can't believe I waited this long to do this. And yet the awareness isn't, still isn't quite up to par yet. I mean, it, most of the time when we talk about access barriers, we think economic access barriers. Insurance, is that going to be covered? But it sounds like in this case there is um, the awareness factor is sort of socio-culturally biased. There's, there's elements of, well, I didn't do this 20 years ago, and so my right. relative shouldn't do that either. I work in a, a very private specialty. I think we have more of an onus on us as women's health care providers to educate because you're not running around necessarily, you know, talking about your menstrual problems with your buddies at lunch. Um, it's, it's just, I mean, you might, but it's not, you're less likely to do that than you're going to talk about your asthma medication or, you know, your allergies uh, or your vaccinations that you had for your child. It, it's just, it's not something that's standard protocol. So it, it, it puts more of an onus on us and responsibility to educate. Coming back to your comments about or questions about um, economic barriers, in my opinion, they're very few. This is really universally covered by insurance. Insurers, I think, really like it. Again, we were diminishing the hysterectomy rate uh, tremendously, um, and the complication rate associated with hysterectomies, of course, as well. We're talking Medicaid. I mean, in our state, state our state Medicaid is, is really very good about this. And then from a negotiating standpoint, with insurers, you bring this stuff into office, they eat it alive. I mean, they're saving countless amounts of dollars by not bringing people to the hospital. The patient's satisfaction with her insurance is going to be tremendously high. Now, another angle, if we're going to start talking health economics, we got a big discussion here. Um, <laughs> we'll be here all day. I yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the people that we have, the biggest economic barriers are people that have very high deductible plans. So, and it's, it's not just for endometrial ablation, but for all procedures we do, pregnancies included in deliveries. Um, that, they're the people that are really struggling. Now, if you're pregnant, you're going to have a baby one way or the other, right? Right. But an endometrial ablation, it's not a procedure that you necessarily have to do. So I think some people struggle a lot longer than they need to. My big comment to tell the audience, ask patients to think about all the money they're going to save and all the supplies that they're not spending on every month. Right. So from your perspective, it's quote-unquote elective. But for these people who are struggling, it's not simply elective. This is more yeah. than semi-elective, in my opinion. There, yes, there are some people that have a direct medical indication. The only medical indication I can think of for endometrial ablation, I mean, a real serious medical indication, is if you're anemic. Okay, And there's few people that get anemic. We'll often do blood counts on people soon after their period stops. I mean, people that will tell me horrible stories. I hear all the time, too, you know, it looks like a crime scene in my bathroom. Uh, do a blood count on her. It's amazingly you know, a little low, nor you know, low normal, but not horrible. It's rare to have people that have this that are truly anemic, amazingly. So, so yeah. I, I think this is a semi-elective procedure. But fortunately, insurers have recognized, as well as Medicaid, that it's important um, as well. And usually what we will see is people's blood counts will go up to more normal levels anyway. Their energy levels go up, of course, as well. Moods improve tremendously. Sex life improves tremendously also. And there's, there's just so many adjunctive benefits that we're not given enough credit for. So. What about on the training end? Um, how is the state of training for people's um, preparedness to be able to offer this particular procedure? 
The, the actual procedure itself, a monkey could do it. <laughs> well, I've heard that in orthopedic ORs, and I never quite believed it, <laughs> not being an orthopedist. Yeah, a pretty sharp monkey um, could do it. The, the, the techniques are amazingly easy. The development of these global endometrial ablation techniques, are, they're phenomenal. The people that have designed these things, the companies that make them, they have safety mechanisms in place, et cetera, to make this as safe as I think it's ever going to be. The in-office part of it is where this thing gets very interesting. The in-office adoption of global endometrial ablation across the country is horrible. And this is nothing new. We've been doing uh, in-office endometrial ablation and in-office uh, hysteroscopic tubal sterilization now since 2008. And I stopped counting at over 3,000 cases that we had done in-office with a tremendous safety profile and satisfaction profile. It's not that hard. Talk to your insurer. Make sure you don't have to pay anything extra. Look at your state guidelines for in-office care. Um, buy some equipment. It costs you less than 10 grand. You'll make that up in four, six months of extra revenues you'll make from doing in-office ablations anyway. And then go talk to your anesthesiologist. What I told our anesthesiologist in 2006 is, look, we're going to do this. You either come in my office and do it with me, or I'm going to find somebody else to do it because it's the right thing to do. And now the anesthesiologists eat it a lot. They bill and collect separately. The reason they love it is our turnover times in my office are about 30 minutes. So, you know, we, we'll do cases that quick. And granted, I have a lot of staff, and I have two sets of hysteroscopy equipment, et cetera. Um, but it is a much more productive use of your time and the patient's time. We generally have patients in and out in an hour, and they're very happy with that process. You do anything in the hospital electively, you're going to be there for six hours. So it's, it's a great process. Right. So clearly it's not simply a patient awareness issue. This is a physician awareness issue as well that you're encountering that not enough offices are even coming close to putting this on their radar. It, it is win, win, win. Okay. Mm -hmm. Physicians, patients, patients, families, insurers. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that you wonder why there isn't more adoption that's out there. And I think that physicians are just somewhat nervous to take that step. We were too. Um, one of my biggest principles is safety. So that's why I strong armed our anesthesiologist to you know, go ahead and go through this process. And they're incredibly happy with it as well now. Well, you mentioned before we wrap up that this technology has been around for 25 years, that it's been in the offices uh, for at least 8 to 10 years. So do you see any um, expected or anticipated updates in the technology or standard of practice that might increase its usage or utilization in, in practice across the country? Game changers that are coming out for improvement in, in office care or safety, I don't think so. Um, there is a technique that's on the horizon. I can't mention their name because they'll probably go public at some point. But um, they have amenorrhea rates that are uh, better than even the Novishers and, and amenorrhea rates, which are the highest on the market right now. So th that could be a piece of uh, adopted technology within the next five years, I'd say. But I don't think it's going to change the path of what I'm talking about here today. It, it's honestly, it's the same technique. Uh, I've done some research for them. Um, and it, it's from a physician perspective, a patient perspective, it's identical. Uh, but it's a, a very cool process. And any improvement we can have in amenorrhea rates, uh, you know, we'll all take it. So. so any closing thoughts before we wrap up? No, well, thanks for having me. I, this is one of my favorite topics. I, people, patients just love it. Um, they, you know, to see them back three, four months afterwards and 
the smiles on their faces and how easy it was and uh, you know, how their lives have changed. It's a, it's a priceless feeling for us as well. And as a, a physician and to the audience out there, you know, don't take those things for granted. Um, the, the good feeling that you get from patients and the thank yous that you get, they're heartfelt and they're real. And this is a tremendous opportunity for you to you know, personally get some more satisfaction out of your job. Well, with that, I very much want to thank Dr. Montesuaro for his time and insights on in-office endometrial ablation. We've covered a lot of ground on this topic, but for more information, please do visit ReachMD.com and check out our other programs in women's health. This is Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks as always for listening.